Hello everyone, welcome again to our new episode of Across the Borders. Today I have a very special guest, Dr. Ariji Chakraborty, who I like to call a global optometrist. Yes, where we have majority of our guests who have been to one country, he has a work experience of five different countries. He started his journey with bachelor's of optometry and M.Phil from India, then a lecturer in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He then moved doing his PhD from the University of Auckland, New Zealand, where his research to understand the visual development in children who were born with prenatal birth risk was published and also featured in mainstream media such as New Zealand Herald, Times of India, Fox News, CNBC News Canada, Radio New Zealand, and many other platforms. He then moved forward to do his postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Waterloo. Currently, Dr. Arijit is an assistant professor at Midwestern University Chicago and also holds an adjacent faculty appointment at University of Waterloo. Yes, he does travel between two countries and has continued being a professor. Thank you so much Dr. Arijit for joining me on this podcast and I hope I've done some justice to your huge introduction. Welcome to the podcast. Hi Ukte, that was indeed an extensive and a long introduction. It's my pleasure to be here. And you can just uh, call me Ari or Arijit, so that's fine. You don't have to call me doctor. <laughs> All right, Arijit. I would just like to understand your huge journey, if you can give us a brief perspective from your end. Yeah, so uh, I did my bachelor's in optometry between 2004 and eight in Kolkata and followed by, uh, actually, as part of my bachelor's, I also did a one-year internship in a hospital in Delhi, and the hospital is called Dr. Shroff's Charity Eye Hospital. So while I was doing my internship, I got involved in a short project involving understanding how binocular vision anomalies affect learning disability or affect learning performance. So while I was doing that research, I thought that I am more keen to get involved in research rather than just being in clinics. So I wrote the entrance exam for the LA School of Optometry. I think I was the first optometrist who's not from southern part of India who did MPhil in LA School. So there also I worked on something like accommodative spasm under the mentorship of Dr. Krishna Kumar, who is the principal right. of LA School. I got involved in some bit of teaching for undergraduate students at ESO, and I kind of enjoyed my teaching when I decided that, okay, so that's what I really want to be. I then got this job offer from this uh, small university in Malaysia. I moved to Malaysia, started teaching there, uh, started a few bits of collaboration with the National University of Malaysia. And then I realized that I pretty much don't know anything about research. I should be like really go through the stringent process of research, like understanding what research is all about, research methods. And that's when I started looking for mm-hmm. PhD opportunities. And that actually took me to Auckland, New Zealand. So I was more interested to understand visual processing in children and adults. So I wrote to a couple of professors in Canada. One of those professors, Dr. Robert Hayes, who is a big name in MLP research, he was at McGill University. He suggested me that I should reach out to Dr. Ben Thompson, who was back then in Auckland. 
So I wrote to him and the rest, you know. Wow. I completely understand that coming from the same Indian optometry background, research has been not a very shining end for Indian optometry students. And it's so interesting to know that one project can lead to so many different aspects. So how was your experience managing work in different countries? And if you can share two cents about moving to so many countries, something that you would like to share. One important aspect which I learned in due course is like you need to be very adaptable. Now, Ukti, you are in US, you know that how culturally different these two countries are. Yes. Having worked in like three different continents and especially like I have worked in a country where there was more like East Asian dominance. Again, when I moved to a different country where there is a Caucasian dominance, there were different cultural aspects. But I think that eventually helps you to evolve as a better human being. You are more globalized. You explore different aspects of different cultures and society that essentially help you to evolve as a better human being. One of the aspects I would mention, and as you rightly said, that research is not really imbibed into the curriculum of Indian optometry. Right. But I see what is happening in the last four or five years, that this scenario is slowly changing. Yes. Places like Elite School of Optometry, LB Prasad, or Bharati Vidyapit, Lotus College of Optometry, they are introducing research as part of their undergraduate curriculum. Right. Undergraduate students are doing bit of research. They are putting that in a form of thesis. I can totally see that it is changing and it is changing in the right direction. Yeah, that I agree completely. Even I have seen that my current juniors have been doing extensively well and now people are exploring different options in research. They don't really want to stick only to clinics but want to contribute in research. Absolutely, because every now and then I keep getting emails from all these undergraduate students that they want to do research, they want to apply to a university in Canada or in Australia or in the United States. So what's the process like? So I think people have started recognizing that other than being in clinical practice or in like a corporate practice, like working with big companies like Bosch and Lom or Johnson & Johnson or Alcon, there is a third avenue and that is research, like going into academia and research is definitely a big or major chunk of academia. Totally. How did your Indian optometry help you? Because I know that's the core where everything started, but how did it help you throughout the journey when you went across so many borders? In the hindsight, I never feel that there was any kind of void in my optometry education. For example, when I did my undergraduate in Calcutta, and the way I have studied optics, the way I have studied uh, physiology and anatomy of the eye or clinical optometry, I do not really see that as much different from the way we teach in the United States or we teach in Canada, or I have seen people teaching in New Zealand. The only difference is, I would say that here, teaching is more evidence-based. So here, whatever research is happening, we imbibe that into our teaching methodology. That did not happen in India. Mm -hmm. But going back to the question, how Indian optometry helped me, I think essentially the foundation of a scientist, and as you move higher, your foundation needs to be very, very strong. True. So Indian optometry curriculum that I have been through, both in terms of my bachelor's program as well as the master's program, that had prolific influence on the way that I teach today or the way I have carried forward my research. That's so interesting. I feel I had a similar experience being in United States because there are a few limitations in the way an optometrist works here. They can do more of prescribing medications and things which we are not trained to do back in India. But still, I felt the core has still helped me work better in this country. So I didn't feel the difference in terms of the core knowledge that was imparted back in India compared to here. And I think we are all building on it. Absolutely. And we are still contributing towards the development of Indian optometry. 
I would rather say that some of the things that we have studied in India, especially the way optics is being taught in India, is pretty extensive. That's not the same way I actually see in places like United States or Canada. So some of the things we have learned pretty extensively. The other major, major, I would say, advantage that we had when we were doing internship, we have done it really hands-on. We have worked with real patients. Here, more often than not, they are not allowed to work with real real patients. They are essentially observing and at the very fag end of their internship, they're actually working with real patients still under the supervision. Because I remember when I was in Delhi, I was going to all those remote parts of Uttar Pradesh or Haryana or Rajasthan and actually I was taking independent clinical decisions. So I would say the way Indian optometry system works that helps you to evolve as a better clinician. But having said that, there is also a limitation. Indian optometry is not regularized. Right. It's high time that we should actually start working towards that. I know that we have been working on that for last maybe 15 or 20 years. Ever since I stepped into an optometry school, I was being told that it will be regularized soon. But that soon never came. So that's something we should really look into smaller countries like Nepal or Philippines or Malaysia, they all have their optometric council. They go through a board exam once they finish their optometry school. I think that India really needs to think in that direction. I completely agree. And just to give you a bit highlight on that, there has been a progress, which I was recently told and which was also part of another podcast that I had with optometrist Nilesh Thite. He did mention about, you know, how is the progress going on? So I think all the senior optometrists have really understood that this is the need of an R and they are working in that direction very strongly. And the progress that I've seen in last few years has been much more than probably the last 10 years that I've been in the industry as well. Absolutely. Things are moving very fast with the advent of ASCO and all all of these kind of things. I'm pretty sure that things are moving in the right direction. Things are moving pretty fast, but we are really lagging behind and we really have a lot to catch up on. I agree. So can you share a little more about your research? Because I feel your research is so interesting. Can you tell me something more about your current projects? Yeah, so overall, right from my PhD to what I'm doing at present. So my broad research question is to understand that how the visual brain is functioning. So when I say visual brain is mainly because when light is entering and falling on the retina and an image is forming on the retina, the way we perceive image is basically the way our brain trains us to perceive an image. So I would say 80% of the work is happening between retina and visual cortex, not much in the anterior segment or the remaining of the posterior segment. So I was more keen to understand that what is happening within that visual brain or the visual cortex. Now, my primary question is, can we find any sort of marker within the visual cortex which suggests abnormal neurodevelopment in children? For example, when I was doing my PhD, I was working with a group of children whose mothers were taking drugs during pregnancy or a group of children who were born hypoglycemic. Now, all of this actually affect the occipital cortex, which houses the visual brain or the visual cortex. Now, we are trying to find a marker, an early marker, on the basis of which we can judge that whether there is any neurodevelopment anomaly. So I was using different sort of behavioral psychophysics. So these are basically visual simulations that we play on computer. So children watch their simulation 
and then they give us response and based on their response we judge that whether there is any deficit in their visual processing mm-hmm. so when i moved from new zealand to canada or in the north america i wanted to use that that i have done in new zealand but i also wanted to add on to brain scanning now if you see in optometry not many people actually work with functional magnetic resonance imaging or mri so i really wanted to understand the structural and the functional integrity of the visual cortex and that actually opened a whole new avenue right. to understand that the, how the visual brain is functioning so basically i look into the brain and try to understand if there is a visual deficit is brain contributing to a visual deficit so i work with different kind of anomalies like retinal blastoma is one of that so for example a child got enucleated because the child had retinal blastoma in that eye so when the child is growing up with just one eye we know that our visual system is essentially binocular but when there is a complete loss of signal from one eye how does affect brain performance how the brain is compensating for the loss of signal from that eye so that's something i'm looking mm-hmm. basically based on the scannings that we are doing with mri or basically the brain mapping that we are uh, doing with mri mm-hmm. i'm also interested in amblyopia with similar sort of questions so currently i'm working with amblyopia but the question remains same that how the visual brain is functioning Wow, I think this is one aspect where we sometimes tend to take it for granted that oh yeah, the brain is doing its work. Let's focus only on the eye. But it's just when these questions come up, we realize that oh my god, there's so much more. It's all connected and how being an optometrist, you can study the brain to see how it would behave. I think this is really interesting and something that I have probably not been aware about. Has there been any issues with the immigration's work permit? How did you manage doing it? Now in today's world the collaborations are all online like I meet all my collaborators at different conferences or sometimes I visit their labs but as you mentioned that my collaborations are mainly in New Zealand Canada US I am currently in US I have a permanent residency of Canada so I do travel quite often between these two countries mm-hmm. now ever since I left New Zealand in early 2016 I have never gone back to New Zealand but I know all the people there so I'm still working with them so I think after a certain level you do not really need to physically visit a country to collaborate you can just collaborate from where you are you just need the right intention and you need to have the network involving right people right the other part of your question about immigration or whether any challenges i have faced being an indian coming from a country where you need visa to pretty much even visit most of the countries in the world yes that is time consuming but i would not say that that had ever been a hindrance to the work that i have been doing be it like going to malaysia with work permit or i have been on student visa for 4 years in new zealand I don't think I have had any problem. Same with my postdoctorate tenure in Canada. I was actually hired on a work visa. Later on after a year I applied for my permanent residency and I got my permanent residency within like 2 months. Wow. In Canada it happens on a point based system so if you have a certain qualification for example for bachelor's they give certain points for master's they give additional points for PhD they give even additional points. Mm-hmm. Then if you have some work experience from Canada that counts towards some more points your English language ability and all of this. So Canada's permanent residency system is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. So from Canada when I moved to the United States they sponsored my H1B academic visa. If you are with an industry position or for profit position it goes through a lottery. Right. And they have this quota and 
Indians tend to have the largest chunk there. So the odds of you being an Indian getting selected through the H-1B lottery process is a bit challenging and it is becoming even more challenging. But if you are in academia, if you are with a higher education university or if you are with a non-profit research organization, then they can get you an H-1B visa in no time because they do not really have that cap, that maximum limit. Mm. So in that sense, we were lucky. Oh, that's interesting to know, yeah. Because even though I am in United States, as you said, yes, H-1B has been a huge challenge for, I think, everyone. But if you're interested in academia, that's probably a nice route to just go in and make your life easier to work when you want to work. In. Yeah, absolutely. Because that gives you a lot of different options. For example, like if you're a student, you are on an F-1 visa. If you are coming here to do your postdoc, you are on a J-1 visa. But yeah, you need to just understand the immigration system. And there are attorneys and lawyers, they will help you. So I do not really see that being a major challenge. That's really interesting. And I'm sure many listeners who would always have that hesitance, like, oh, how do I get work in US? Because it's becoming challenging each day, especially in the United States. So I think this probably is a nice route, knowing that there's no gap in it and they can get it faster and easier. Absolutely. Any other barriers or limitations that you faced throughout your journey in different countries? Was there something that you would like to share and give some advice? Uh, I would not say that is a barrier, but since I'm an Indian optometrist from India, and since in India we are not licensed, we do not really have a board exam that we write after we graduate from an optometry school. So in many of the countries, for example, when I was in New Zealand, I could not really test my patients. Basically, there was a clinician who was helping me in doing all those clinical tests. But then again, that's not a barrier when you are doing clinical research. In clinical research, you can pretty much do anything you want to do because you are not prescribing anything. So when it comes to even prescribing classes, for example, if that is part of your research, you cannot really prescribe classes. Oh. So I was part of this clinical trial in Canada where we were looking into the efficacy of dicoptic stimulation. So that's basically an iPod-based game, mm-hmm. which we thought would improve the vision of the bad eye in amblyopia. So that was a large clinical trial, and it was across five different countries, Canada, Hong Kong, New Zealand, Australia, and United States. Now, there, as part of the clinical trial, or rather patients with amblyopia we were seeing, we could not prescribe classes because two of the optometrists that were part of that research were Indian. Mm -hmm. So we had to actually refer them to a clinician who would have prescribed classes. So these kind of problems you might be facing, but if your research is solid, if your questions are robust, I think that they will overlook this kind of things. They can easily hire a clinician who would be helping in prescribing medicines or prescribing glasses. That will, again, as I'm saying, will not be a hindrance. But having a license in the country where you are doing research is always helpful. Yeah, I actually just had my other episode, which was recorded by an optometrist from Malaysia. And he did mention that they are having like bridging program exam in Malaysia, which if you sit and if you pass, you can be an independent clinician. So I think countries are realizing that Indian optometrists have these limitations and there are a few ways where you can easily get around and get your projects done. Absolutely. If Malaysia is doing that, that's a very welcoming step because when I was in Malaysia, that thing was not there. So we pretty much had a similar situation. And I think that slowly more and more countries will recognize Indian optometry because, for example, you might have heard about the bridging program in Canada. So there is this international optometry bridging program where being an optometrist, you can come and take the step one and step two of the bridging program. And then you are qualified to practice there. If you pass the exam and if you go through the bridging program like a few months, 
then you are as licensed as anyone else. Wow, that's really interesting. And I hope it becomes a little more global and standardized. So it's easier to practice in different countries. Now, I know there are many listeners who are aspiring to apply for PhD or any graduate school. Is there something that you would like to guide them in way of reaching out to professors or how to give applications in these different countries? I think everyone has this hesitance of where do I start or how do I start? Now, Ukti, it depends upon which country you are applying to. It is a bit different from country to country. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, okay, let me start with New Zealand. So New Zealand follows the same system as Australia and that follows the same system as UK. Okay. Basically supervisor dominated. So for example, the way I applied, I reached out to my PhD mentor, Dr. Ben Thompson. He conducted an interview for me and that was over Skype. Then I had interview with a couple of more faculty members who were eventually part of my committee. So after those interviews, Dr. Thompson suggested that I should apply for a scholarship. And that's an university-wide scholarship, which is very competitive. So when that application becomes successful, then I got enrolled into the PhD program. That was pretty much it. For countries like Australia, New Zealand, or UK, all you need is a decent score in IELTS, high GPA from India. And they always value if you have a bit of research experience. Even if you have presented poster in some of the national conference, put that in. That always counts because they want to know that you know how to conduct research. Mm-hmm. Of course, you will learn more, but having knowledge is always like value added. Mm-hmm. So that's about Australia, New Zealand and UK. I'm, I'm pretty sure that these three countries work in a similar pattern. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to a country like Canada, in Canada, again, you have to take an IELTS exam. Mm-hmm. Only few universities in India are exempted to take IELTS because those are recognized and those are mostly like Bitspill and your IITs. If you are wanting to do PhD in optometry in Canada, there are only two places. One is the University of Waterloo, which is an English-speaking optometry school. There is another University of Montreal, which is a French-speaking optometry school. So these are only two places where you can graduate with a PhD in vision science or optometry. But your search should not just stop with University of Waterloo or University of Montreal. There are other places like York University, which has the country's largest center for vision research. So you can get enrolled into a PhD program through Center for Vision Research, but your degree will come from psychology. Similarly, University of Toronto, your degree will come from either psychology or neuroscience. University of British Columbia, your degree will come from either neuroscience or psychology or bioengineering, depending upon what you are choosing. Okay. I would primarily say that ask yourself, what is your research interest? Do you want to work on binocular vision? Do you want to work on contact lens? If you want to work on contact lens, then you are limited to all these optometry schools. Mm-hmm. There is University of McMaster, which work on contact lens material design, but then your options are limited. But if you're in neuroscience or psychology related, like visual brain performance, you can pretty much work anywhere. If you're in optics, you can pretty much work anywhere because there are a lot of universities with Department of Physics or Department of Optics where you can very well get a chance. There are only one or two universities, for example, University of British Columbia, McGill University, there they need GRE score in addition to your IELTS score. So that's a little different. Now, when it comes to the United States, you definitely, definitely, definitely need to have a GRE score. So prepare, I would say, if you're in your fourth year of internship, that is the time when you should start preparing for GRE. Mm -hmm. Keep yourself at least six to seven months, prepare nicely for GRE. If you have a decent score at 310 or up, then you will have very good chance of getting in places like Ohio State or University of Houston. I might be wrong. People from Ohio State might be like 315, but 
anything above 310, you will have decent chance to get in the good vision science programs across US. So for US, you need to have your GRE score, you need to have your TOEFL or IELTS score. The way the system in US work is you go through a series of coursework as part of your PhD program. That's the same in Canada. You have to have some certain coursework. For example, if you are researching on accommodation and virgins, you still have to take coursework from, for example, basic vision science, psychophysics, research methodology, biostatistics. So this kind of courses, you will have like 24 or 36 credit hours to complete Mm -hmm. before you can graduate with your PhD program. So I would say if you are intending to do PhD in UK, Australia, New Zealand, reach out to the professors. Uh, If you want to do it in Canada, again, reach out to the professor. But uh, the thing is that you have to also reach out to the graduate school. If it is in United States, I would definitely recommend reach out to the professor, but also to the dean. Keep it in mind. You might not be getting the chance to work under the supervision of the professor right away. Okay. You need to go through a series of coursework before you can start your actual research. Now, this might vary from university to university, but this is more or less the same picture in most of the universities in the United States. Hope that was helpful. Yeah, it was. It was actually very informative. I had this another question for you. Suppose today I like myopia, for example. And I think, okay, I want to work in that research, but throughout the course, because it's not very evidently research-oriented education back in India, you might not have that exposure till you actually get into it. Sometimes I feel there's an hesitation of, you know, what if the research I'm doing, by the time I graduate with my PhD in four to five years, that itself might become obsolete or not be really at par. How do we figure out and have solutions for these kind of questions or struggles? So I I see two parts in your question. One is how do we decide that in which area I want to work? And the second is what if when I start working on a research, like a research topic after five years, I see that the research is already outdated. Right. There is always a chance. I'll just answer the second part first because that is easier. (laughs) (laughs) So there's always a chance. For example, if I start a research project of which I think will pan across four years, at the end of four years, there might be another lab in another part of the world or maybe in the United States, which have already done that research and that research has become outdated. So the way I would say is you should always, always keep yourself updated with the literature that is there. For example, if you're doing myopia research, you should become an encyclopedia of myopia research. Mm -hmm. Read everything. I would definitely say don't read all the papers because that is simply not feasible. But at least you should know the basic concepts of each of the papers. Go through the abstracts. You should know that what the papers are talking about. And from there, you'd be able to predict that in which direction the research is going. Where is the research gap? If you are identifying your research gap, it is not so likely that the other group will also be identifying that research gap and exactly use the same protocol that you are using. That is very unlikely. So I do not really see that happening that often. Right. I have decided upon a research gap. I have formulated a research question and I have designed my research protocol. And another lab in another part of the world has exactly done those three things in the order that I have done. That is very unlikely. That will be plagiarism. I would say that don't really think about that. My research will be outdated. My research will become obsolete. Just do whatever you are doing. Make sure that you are always updated with latest literature. That's one. Going back to the first part of your question, how do you decide upon what you want to work on? It is essentially very difficult. Actually, coming from our Indian optometry system, it is even more difficult Mm -hmm. because we have not really gone through the process of research. Most of the time, the faculty members have also not done research that they can show us a way that in which direction we should think. For example, I was interested in binocular vision. 
and I really wanted to do clinical binocular vision. But then after I finished my master's research, I thought clinical binocular vision research is more like doing clinical practice. I did not really contribute anything new to the existing knowledge. I really want to know how the brain is dictating or mediating all of this. So then I moved to a different thing. It can always happen. You start with a research question, then you feel that, well, there is always chance of expanding the research question. Then you move to a slightly different domain, but also linked to the primary question that you asked through your previous research. That is always there. The other thing I would say that when you are doing internship, I would assume that you are going through clinical rotation through different departments like contact lens, low vision, or binocular vision, or PEDS, or cornea, or retina. Try to understand, ask yourself, what really fascinates me? Now, again, I keep telling this to all that not everybody have to do research. There is still scope of improving clinical practice, improving just normal education. Right. Research is just one domain where optometrists can come to. If during your internship, something comes to your mind that this is something I'm really fascinated about. I'm really fascinated about how vision therapy is actually helping convergence insufficiency. Or I'm really fascinated about what are the latest, for example, antimicrobial contact lens solutions in the market. So this is something I really want to pursue further. That's when I think that you should move towards research. And once you are extremely sure about this is what really fascinates me, Mm -hmm. I think that there will be no change in your research direction. You might change from contact lens solution to contact lens material or to contact lens design or to lens design. Right, right. But I would not see you working from contact lens design or contact lens solution to something like extremely at the other end. Now, I have seen people doing, for example, the interview that you did with Dr. Stuti Misra. I have seen that she has worked with both retina and cornea. But her basic question, if you see, has always remained the same. She was always working with diabetes. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of link will always be there. I have been working with visual cortex. Now I'm working with retinoblastoma, which is essentially a retina problem. But my question had always been visual development. Always have that link. But yeah, just whatever, whatever really fascinates you, go towards that direction. I'm sure that you will succeed. Right. Wow. This was so informative. Thank you so much once again. A last question for me is one advice that you would like to give out to new grads, any practitioner, any optometrist who want to explore different options in the world or in optometry. One piece of advice that you would want them to always have with them. I would just say like, be it you are a clinician or you are in corporate or you are in academia or you are in research, Right. just follow your passion. Do what you like to do. At the end of the day, you have to be happy. Don't try to just match up with another person, your peer or your senior or a faculty member. Just try to excel each and every day. Try to be a better version of you tomorrow. So today, if you are at 80% tomorrow, try to reach 90%. Day after tomorrow, try to reach 100%. So just try to excel yourself. And I'm pretty sure that you will go and reach greater heights. I have no doubt about that. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was really, really interesting. Just be original. Just be yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just be original. Yes, I would definitely, definitely take that as a piece of advice for myself. You are doing really well, Hukte. And I think this podcast will be very helpful. I understand that you'll be doing a series of podcasts and I'm sure that you'll be getting different perspective from different people who are successful in their own domains. You are definitely contributing towards making Indian optometry much, much better. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to get it from you, especially you being a global optometrist, which I like to call you. Likewise, Sukte. It was an absolute pleasure to be on your show. One last thing is, if you don't mind, can you share your email address or something where people can reach out to you? I will be also adding it in the description. 
absolutely so that's my first name dot last name so arjit dot chakravarti at uwaterloo.ca or even simpler is ari that's the first three letter of my first name at midwestern.edu wonderful thank you so much arjit once again for your time i would rather really like to thank you for this opportunity this is wonderful Thank <laughs> you.